Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Dan. Hello. And Laura. Hey, hey. And I'm Vanessa. Uh, thanks for being with me, you two. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Tonight... We're going to explore some design activities for data ethics and the ethics of invention. Big topic. Will we go back as Divin- uh, you know as far as Da Vinci? What do you reckon? Will we? Is that our ambition? Knowing us, we'll be back. We'll take you on a journey through time and space, uh, and we'll also ask Laura to put her guest hat on as well as her host hat because you just don't work hard enough for this show. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even say that with a straight face. Um, and we'll we'll interview Laura later in the show as well about an open source uh, resource that she's put on on GitHub, which is a risk assessment quiz for automation and machine learning. So if you're in automation and machine learning, you'll want to stick around for that chat. Before we get there, what's happening in news this week? Well, on the topic of risk assessment and automation and machine learning, there is a um, hilarious, in my opinion, uh, trial that's just started, I think, on Monday um, over in the U.S. Uh, It's being um, prosecuted by the... um, who is it being prosecuted by? Oh, the U.S. District Court. Sorry. I knew it was a it was a big government group, but I couldn't remember the name. Once you're out of our jurisdictions, I yeah, think you, it's know, like, you it's can like, be pretty vague it's on being it. It's being prosecuted by the U.S. government, <laughs> <laughs> some branch of the U.S. The US government. government. <laughs> um, but in this particular case, it's an interesting slash hilarious one because it is, in fact, an algorithm on trial. That is a, it is a screening algorithm that is used to determine who can um, receive housing for this particular business group. And... Um, so there's this company called CoreLogic Rental Property Solutions, um, also renamed as SafeRent, which sounds like they've had some bad press already and needed to rebrand. Um, and it sounds like there was some most likely discriminatory, probably biased practices happening in this algorithm, and they're putting it on trial to see if it was a fair and appropriate thing to be using, um, you know, across the public as a way of screening potential candidates for rental properties. Um, that's really all the most interesting bits about this like there's a lot of legalese that's going to be happening here but um i think the important bit is that this particular technology was not only like potentially um, unfair and there's some examples of plaintiffs who think that they you know were particularly good candidates and there was no reason other than their race or gender that they didn't get through um but also there was no review process and it was extremely opaque so this particular algorithm just had no recourse you just couldn't do anything if you didn't get through and in fact you probably didn't even know that it was applied to you in the first place i wonder if you know these details about the trial laura so forgive me if you don't Mm. but when you say that the algorithm is being put on trial are they literally you know unpacking the algorithm or are they are they bringing in the developers and saying tell us what you did you know make this process transparent I mean look it's definitely the (laughs) clickbait title like saying algorithm on trial but uh, look I I think um the specific the specific detail of the cases was it appropriate and fair to use this particular algorithm so they will be looking at the details of it um 
Uh, That's okay. No, yeah. I just wanted to double check in case this had some other angle that was, you know, reaching further than we'd seen before. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's there's an outcome where the algorithm is found guilty and <laughs> then sent to prison because that's, you know, like, obviously it's still the company's yeah, responsibility. Yeah. So, and this does kind of like, you know... Yeah like cut against this question that we have in general of like, you know, who is responsible for automated yeah, systems? Yeah, and that's why I was wondering where it landed. Did it land at the real estate agency or did it land at the software developers? You know what I mean? Like, mm. like is it the people who made the application or is it the people who decided to buy and deploy it? Or is it know? just nebulous enough that you yeah, don't know? Yeah. 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 And so we don't know who to sue, so we can end up suing the wrong person. Look, it, as far as I can tell, and again, like, you know, this is like a, mm. a short email statement from um, – the National Housing Law Project. Mm. So it doesn't have heaps of details, but as far as I can tell, it is essentially the, in this case, the developers and the users of the algorithm are one and the same, or at least they were closely involved in the development of this algorithm. So I think it's proprietary to the company, which in some cases, like, you know, it it simplifies the like angle of attack because there's only the one group to to go after corporate. um, Definitely one to watch. I'd love to see the outcome of that. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine this is going to take several months, so I will try and keep an eye on it and circle back in, say, not, like July. You're and not going to make it your responsibility. I'll try and keep an eye out. <laughs> but look, certainly, um, this is this is setting a precedent, particularly for tenancy laws in the U.S. And I think those tend to impact other developed nations. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly one to watch from a precedent-setting point. Especially of view. seeing as Core Logic do have a presence in Australia. There you go. Indeed. Bam. Yep. Bringing the relevance. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. In slightly more global news, last week Twitter introduced um, a change to the home feed algorithm, which is always a touchy uh, subject for the millions and millions of users of Twitter. Uh, The change was first to hit iOS and then um, was meant to roll out soon on Android devices and the web. But what it did was it made it more difficult, again, to view tweets in chronological order. So the order in which people are posting and anyone you follow could randomly, you know, have tweets appear in your timeline. Uh, they keep messing with this algorithm and, you know, presumably trying to create the right context for sponsored tweets, for example, to come up in your timeline or to draw attention to, you know, high profile posts and, you know, whatever that might drive from their end around stickiness on the site, like duration that people are spending. Uh, Either of you, you know, keen tweeters, did, did this affect you? Did you have a strong gut reaction to this? I wouldn't say I had a strong gut reaction to it, but I'm glad it happened because I would like everything to be presented to me in chronological order because I don't think that the algorithms that are presenting things to me really are presenting things that I want to see. Mm. Personally, I think my algorithms about me are getting stuff wrong. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like since they've been like doing all of this home timeline curation stuff, my timeline feels like it's narrowed. Like it feels like I'm seeing, and also it feels like I'm seeing a lot more sponsored tweets, which are wildly irrelevant to me. Mm. Um, Like the algorithm still has not worked out that because I like a VC company named Tractor, that I am not actually interested in tractors. (laughs) The number of ads that I get, I'm I'm not even kidding. And this is a phenomenon. You can like, Matt Allen is like a reasonably well-known Melbourne Twitter person persona like yeah. Sydney Twitter persona and his his company 
is like responsible for a number of people getting pulled into the ad tech segment. And it's just so irritating. And again, you know that I rabbit on about this all the time, but just let me tell you that you're wrong. Like, yeah. let me say this is irrelevant to me. This is not interesting to me and stop putting me in that segment and we'll all be happier. You know what's mm. happening? It's crossing over with your interest in the right to repair movement and all those John Deere tractors are also uh, messing with your algorithm. Uh, yes, the tractor angle, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nice. Is there a right to repair movement for like, you know, people who have a like, you know, they've um, copyrighted like seeds and, you know, like farming, <laughs> farming, like, uh, you know, like a plant, yeah. plant growing technology. Oh, plant genomes oh, are probably copyrighted already, I yeah. would say, yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of a lot of um, things that farmers can't sow themselves unless mm. they like buy them from the companies. Yeah, like, that's a really old issue, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. So, some, something that's possibly a newish issue, um, and it is relevant to the world events that seem to be consuming everything around us. Um, uh, the German Federal Office for Information Security, which has the charmingly German acronym of BSI, which means nothing to me because I don't know what it is in German, um, have advised uh, that users of the Kaspersky antivirus uh, software need to replace it with alternative uh, security solutions due to threats against the EU and NATO countries as part of Russia's uh, on going uh, invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, now, this is... Kaspersky have been around since 1997. They were one of the first, you know, pioneers of uh, antivirus software and up until, you know, recently have been, you know, respected and used widely. But it's... Um, we're, we're in a space now where, you know, if, if you're a company operating within the Russian Federation, um, you are possibly going to be forced to do things that the Russian government want you to do. And um, I think people outside of, or well, certainly governments outside of Russia are, are, um, are taking that on board, particularly with things like sanctions. Uh, for, for, for their part, Kaspersky um, have said that uh, they it's not that it's based not on a technical assessment of the products, but instead is being done by on political grounds uh, with a quote, uh, Kaspersky is a private global cybersecurity company and as a private company does not have any ties to the Russian or any other government. Yeah, yeah, that's like um, that's like a, you know, like WeChat being like, we have no political ties mm. to this Chinese National Party. It's like, sure, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We believe yeah. you, exactly. Like, or even any, but any corporate in any country, you know, will mm. be uh, tied to the values of, of that country in some ways. Absolutely, you know, they've got to operate in that environment. So yeah. there's a certain amount of playing ball, whether that's with very official regulatory oversight. Mm -hmm. Or with much more problematic, uh, you know, governments that don't allow a free press and what have you. You know, all the problems that come with that. So if this can cause, you know, this multinational company to be adding to the lobbying of the Russian government, then I guess that's the intended effect. That's, you know, this yeah. is a de facto sanction sort of action. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And look, I mean, as as you say, Vanessa, like other countries aren't immune. Like look at what Australian governments have done with regards to media laws and Google. Um, you know, immediate content like companies need to toe the line or at least obey the laws of com of countries that they're operating in, mm. and you know, or get their hands dirty and lobby, <laughs> or get yeah. their hands dirty and lobby. But like yeah. you know, if you're if you're operating in Russia right now, you're going to be operating at the whim of the Russian government, who is yeah. increasingly unhinged. Yeah. So now we are going to hear from Vivica Wiley on design activities for data ethics and more broadly, ethics of invention. Vivica helps organizations face the future by building places for creative collaboration. He leads teams that apply systems, features, and design thinking to bringing products and services all the way from invention through to scale. 
Vivica started out in design and technology as the web was being born, and he has over 20 years of leadership experience in both product development and R&D labs across industry and academia. Um, just to mention a few, he co-founded SIGGRAPH in Asia. Um, he's worked at Choice and at the ABC, and right now he's at CSIRO, leading a team of engineers, designers, and researchers working to reinvent science itself. Welcome, Viv. Well, hi, that was a, a very elaborate and generous introduction. It's nice to be here. Well, lovely to have you on the show, and thank you again for um, agreeing to come and chat to us at very late notice, because I'm a bad producer. <laughs> <laughs> Never say so. That's just radio standard. <laughs> um, yeah, so th yeah, we're, we're very keen to talk about um, what, is, what is the uh, ethics of invention, and um, perhaps I'll just offer that as a kickoff point. Like, to you, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm kind of glad to be invited because I am trying to work something through and I think maybe you can help me figure it out. <laughs> it's, to me, it's about but there's this difference between creativity, innovation and invention, right? So if you think about, so this is my, my original background. For many years, I was a creativity researcher. Like UTS has this amazing lab called the Creativity and Cognition Studios and they have, you know, designers and engineers and um you know, computer scientists and artists all working together in this lab, which is under the faculty of engineering and IT. But they cross, you know, it's very transdisciplinary. And they're making and evaluating things and doing all of this interesting creative work, right? And then after working there, I've then moved into innovation, right, which is this buzzword, but, it, you know, you can uh, run innovation labs in, you know, places like, you know, the ABC and Choice and now working at BSIRO. But what I noticed, right, is that creativity seems so pure. It's this lovely idea. Like, nobody has an ethical problem with creativity. And mm. they think really hard about it. You know, if, you, if you hear that your child is creative or, you, or someone is creative, it's a pure thing. But innovation has a much patchier reputation. And what I think maybe is really interesting to try and tease those things out is if we focus in on invention, which is what lies between the two poles. So, yeah, that's, that's where I'm, I'm heading. Hmm. I mean, perhaps this is a little bit of a tired refrain at this point, but is, do you think perhaps that, that you know, crunchier reputation, um, that, that like, you know, slight discomfort we have with the word innovation is related to how ideas are applied, you know, under capitalism, <laughs> under, under neoliberal capitalism, sorry, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder if like the difference between creativity and, and, you know, innovation and inverted commas is, is simply that, um, when we start to think about how we have to put pressure, make these ideas load-bearing in order to return capital, they start to uh, buckle and fail. I don't think there's any doubt in that, right? Like, that's, that's, what, that's what distinguishes innovation. Like, that's what, that's what I had to do to become, you know, to turn from a creativity researcher into an innovation executive is read a lot of business books. <laughs> <laughs> but if you... But, and my background's also design, and design and innovation are the same in that they're about making value available to people right but yeah and that's constrained heavily constrained by capitalism and i think i think a really good example is like if you look at open innovation programs you've seen these things right so there's you know uh, some platform and people should be, there's it's it's the latest 
and greatest thing in innovation is to open it up to more people. But it's always solving some corporation's problem. So, otherwise, and that's what makes it innovation. They have some problem. They want it to innovate to solve the problem to help them to address a market better or something. And this can be really beneficial. Like it, you know. So it depends who's doing it. That's the thing about right innovation and technology. It hits ethical questions because it is real because it's live. It's having impact. So it can. You know, um, it can go either way. So CSIRO mm -hmm. has a they have an CSIRO has an open innovation project working with Google to find a better algorithm for finding crown of thorns starfish on the reef, and I think that's kind of unequivocally a good use of technology. But then, say you're going to work on a better recommendation algorithm that could be used for good or evil, and we and it didn't. You know, when I first heard about recommendation algorithms, they seemed pure and fine, right? sort of in a capitalist-friendly way. But then mm. if you see the effects, you know, if I see the, the effect of YouTube's recommendation algorithm on my kid, I've had to block YouTube out the router because of that algorithm. It doesn't enter my house for that reason. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is like genuinely virulent i think of it like a virus actually that particular like the youtube recommender algorithm is like terrifying you just it's one straight click and suddenly down the rabbit hole and it's there's no coming back yeah um yeah i uh you've you've like kicked off a whole bunch of ideas for me <laughs> i think <laughs> like all of us three sentences but yeah. um, um i i'm wondering you know have you we seem to have all these different techniques now of modeling behaviours and the impacts of change before we actually deploy. Are we getting any better at um, capturing unintended consequences before they're let loose on the world? Well, maybe that's the upside of innovation is that it's real enough that you can start to evaluate it, right? So it's, it's not just a creative spark or an early invention, but you're about to bring something into the world and you can you can start to apply like Laura's litmus test questions. Or I have a question that I like to ask, which is, you know, if you're, if the, the most harmful thing, think of the most harmful thing that your thing could do, what is that? And then imagine that happening to your most vulnerable user. Mm -hmm. right? So you can do that um, with innovations, whereas with inventions, yeah, maybe, maybe our moral... Um, responsibility is lower because it's less possible to know where they're going to go. Mm. Or maybe not, right? So, um, it's, it's, if you're far-sighted enough, I think maybe the, if the visionaries among us have, can, if they can see further, they, they might, I think they have that responsibility. And I have an example there too. So you've worked at some very interesting places. Um, the ABC I feel very close to because I spent five years there in new media and digital services myself. And when you were there, you co-authored the innovation and experimentation strategy. And in the context of, you know, these sort of massive, you know, issues that we've, we've started the conversation with, I wonder, you know, how did you go about um, putting a scope around something like creating an innovation and experimentation strategy and maybe even, you know, how did you start to think about what guide rails might look like 
for that sort of strategy because mm. strategies are inherently so visionary and you want to open things up and mm. you know so so then how do you kind of constrain it in some ways to something that's achievable and you know what approach did you take wow that's a while ago but i i do remember that we we did think about kind of guide rails and some some principles right you can lay down a few principles and one of the principles that i recall I don't remember how we expressed it at the time, but it was based on the idea of nothing for me without me, nothing about me without me, right? Mm. Participation mm. and making it. So that's one of the benefits of experimentation is that you're doing things on a small scale. It's kind of the point. It's empirical, but it can be iterated on and you're learning. The idea is that you're learning something. So if you bring people in to participate, you know, as early as possible in early designs and, you know, participatory design, if this, this is often, it's, yeah, the term's been debased because it's often used to just mean kind of consultation. But if you actually do it, if you bring the people who will be affected by the thing in uh, as, before you do it, before it's real. And, yeah, that's, and that, that's kind of the power of true invention and innova innovation because they tend to come actually from the people themselves who need the thing, right? Invention... Um, in a, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. People invent things for themselves, and that's the ultimate in a participatory process. Mm. I mean, as you say, this whole um, design by collaboration or participatory design is something of a debased concept because it becomes, um, you know, sort of participation washing very quickly. And you often hear this this debate going on in um, AI and ML circles where people are sort of saying, oh, well, you know, you didn't really ask the right questions. Um, and I think more broadly, this is like a theme I see happening over and over again with design activities where people sort of see some really good and useful insights drawn from like this deep, thoughtful, qualitative design and design activities. And then, and then they try to copy it really cheaply and quickly and they, they find that their outcomes are not very satisfying or they just, you know, use it to validate their design, the decision they'd already made, yeah. you know. And the insights were never that strong anyway. Yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. I, I think it's like, it's a tough one. It's one I've grappled with a lot in my career and I don't really know like how to, how to like help people think about this, but you know, for me, it's always about trust, trusting the process and not having expectations about the outcomes. And I, I don't really know how to talk about it more concretely than that. But like, do you have any insights into how you how you help people like sort of build that, you know, uh, sensitivity to what what the sort of the genuine um, article is and not the sort of uh, the, the like, you know, participatory washing version or how, how to help people who might be like suspicious of or new to these processes, like find their way into them um, with more sincerity? Wow. Um, so first, I think you, you can't, yeah, as, as when you're designing, it's good to not over, not, not over promise and not think that you're going to get too much. But when you're doing participatory work, it can be really dangerous to under resource it, right? And to not, and to not follow through. If you think about, you know, the, the national strategies for violence against women and how much work people put into participating in that process and how devastating it is for people to, you know, have, have not, not have the follow through yet. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, that's tough. Um, I'm probably, I have to say, uh, disclaimer, this is entirely my opinion and nothing to do with my employer. <laughs> right. Doesn't, doesn't, in, doesn't, it's not in my area of work. That's, that's mm. But, um, but yeah, but in my actual work, you know, I, I try to be 
when I'm being participatory, be genuinely participatory. And another rule that I think that I got from an, an ethnographer who was working in this area is that you can't you can't do ethnography that has and that is intended to have design outcomes unless it's embedded inside an actual active project. Like if you if you try and do it up front and then you write a report and then you send it to someone, it just doesn't get enacted. It, it doesn't ever seem to happen. You have to, it has to be part of the, the process of making, which is really difficult for our whole conception of how projects ought to work and how you know, accountability and transparency and being able to say up front what you're planning to do if you're if you're then going to say yeah well it depends depends what the participants or if you're the client what am i buying yeah <laughs> what do i get from this yeah have you picked up any any tricks for you know selling the value of spending that time or is it all you know a handbook of example stories and you know, do you find you have to lean on the big names in industry and say they did this and you know this is understood to be a good idea and you know and then yeah, tell a story about that. Apple's process. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's another fascinating thing. You know, there are lots of books on innovation and how things got to market. And there are there's, there's some really great research on creativity. And there is not that much about invention and how that really works under the hood. There, you know, there's... Um, so, you know, when, when I do find a book like this, like there's a, a book from Ken Kishenda, um called Creative Selection, which is about the, the, the process under the hood at Apple and how they invent things mm. um, from, from someone who was there. Um, and those, those and there's another one called Inventing the Future at the MIT Media Lab. Mm. And those, it's, but it's rare to, to have something written up about how something was successfully invented. It's kind of embarrassing. People don't like to talk about the, the messy middle. I found there's um, a lot to be gleaned from behavioural economics and, you know, unpacking of biases because you tend to read the stories in, in innovation about success and there's that success bias of, you know, it might not have been this or that that you attribute your success to that actually was the cause and I think that can be a super interesting area to explore. Um mm. I like the idea of getting more reading recommendations from you yeah. <laughs> because that Inventing the Future um, of MIT, the Media Lab, was really great. Uh, is, are there any other good old standbys that you rely on? Um, there's a really good book about creativity in Pixar. Um, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, but... There's not a lot. I, I, I've got great recommendations on academic works on creativity. We <laughs> <laughs> um, might have to just check your, your footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, creativity and ethnography are fields really dominated by incredible um, women there who have done um, the work that, that creates and carries those fields. Mm. So, yeah, people like Susan Lee Starr and Margaret Bowden. Um, uh, my heroes in those areas. So perhaps to try and circle back to the to sort of kickoff point for this topic, um, I'm curious how you uh, like conceptualize 
the different force of like the difference between creativity and ethics, because something I was mm. thinking about in the lead up to this conversation is that you, normally, like when we talk about creativity, we think of it as, you know, we, we use words like blue sky thinking and we think of it as kind of like perpetually opening up possibilities. And usually when we talk about ethics and application, it's the sort of opposite. It's like this kind of shutting down of possibilities and saying, well, we don't do mm. this because it, it has problems. And, you know, in some ways, it sort of feels like they're opposite forces. So I'm, I'm really curious, how do you, um, how do you conceptualize them and particularly like conceptualize them in harmony so that you get sort of the right amount of each? Yeah. Um, so this is, I guess, I guess, again, where I feel like I got a huge benefit from my training at the creativity and cognition studios. So Ernest Edmonds and Linda Candy founded that studio and they are kind of, um, leading lights in the world of practice-based research, which is founded on reflective practice, right, out of the education community. So their their idea is, yeah, you you are you do during you know early creative work, you do want to be really kind of divergent and chaotic and come up with all kinds of things. But it's about the reflection and the editing that comes from the reflection. So you can have yeah cycles of of um, you know, divergent and convergent thinking where you're you're imagining and then reflecting and imagining and reflecting. Um, so, yeah, that, mm. that's that's the harmony there. It sort of reminds me a bit mm. of the double diamond, the sort of yeah. expansion of ideas and then the yeah. curating of the ideas to, like, find something to prototype and then doing it again. Yeah, and I feel like the double diamond was what they could sell, right, the, yeah. the people who put that together, which was, <laughs> we'll do it we'll do it twice. We'll go out and in and out and in. But mm. in reality... It's a constant kind of cycle of yeah. divergence and convergence, really. Yeah, absolutely. But people don't like the sort of the, the messiness the of ambiguity. that diagram. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's too confusing. Too much like a sound wave. We like mm. it here in radio. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of have so many more questions, but yeah. I also feel like we need to wrap up. <laughs> I know, I know. We oh, probably do. Time goes too fast. Look, um, Viv, any time we, we see such an excellent resume, it's, it's tricky. I think what we'll do is say thank you so much for your time this evening and um, we'd love to speak to you again and, and probably like nail down a topic in a more fixed way before mm. we do so so that we, we Maybe don't... in another year when you've got some more time with your work at CSIRO under your belt and we can, um, sorry, CSIRO, say the word, Laura. <laughs> um, it would be great you gotta, to hear you start hear saying CSIRO. CSIRO, so you're really yes. in the... Be the proper Aussie. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure that um, when that stuff has landed a bit more, we'll be really curious to hear how it's going and um, what you've learned yeah. from it. Yeah, absolutely. It's really fascinating work. And when it's ready to, to talk about, I'd love to come back. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time tonight. Vivica Wiley, we've been speaking to. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We would like to have an interview with our very own Laura Summers. Our beloved team member <laughs> who also does stuff in the real world. In the real world. Yes. What is the real world? <laughs> I'm not even sure this is the real world. <laughs> yeah. So, Laura, um, we're going to give you the proper intro. Oh, my and, goodness. And in the way... <laughs> you can hear in, Vanessa, like, limbering up well, her in mic. The, in, the, in the way that you would when you get a guest in from overseas and you go, could you share your bio with us? <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll do a quick edit of that. But uh, Laura is a multidisciplinary designer, researching technology ethics and building tools to promote fair machine learning. She's the founder of 
uh, Debias AI and the human behind ethics litmus tests, which I love. And also, um, I don't know how to pronounce this, Fair Cross Ive? Uh, Fair- it's, it's Fair Archive, which is a like, pun on archive, which Got is it. where all the papers are hosted. Love it. That's cute. I haven't come across it. I love a massive X in the middle of a word to throw me off. <laughs> See, the best part of this interview is that we don't need to be polite with I you. I know. I love it. I love it. Also, Just like rake me across the coals. It's totally cool. You know hey, we love hey, you. Hey, hey, hey. That's not all. She's done other things. <laughs> She's also... Um, uh, behind the uh, – are you one of the founders of the Melbourne Fair Machine Learning Reading Group or the founder? I'm you're just part the, of it? The benign dictator for benign life. Benign dictator. I love it. <laughs> love yeah. it. Yeah, it's my group and I, I run yeah. it. I run it. Although I have I have had people saying, where is it happening, Laura? 2022, no reading group so far. So mm. I need Pressure's to get on, on. It. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's yeah. almost Q2. Mm. That's it. Um, I love it. But now she brings us the very imaginatively named Sweet Summer Child Score – which I love, and I think that gives you a little hint to the wisdom that, that, that comes with this score. So Laura's passionate about feminism, digital rights, and designing for privacy. For these reasons, we love her. She speaks, writes, and runs workshops at the intersection of design and technology, and she's always been very pro, what can I share with my community? Mm. In the spirit of that, you've just released your first open source library, Risk Assessment Quiz for Automation and Machine Learning. Laura, what does this mean? Right, well... Um to try and like uh, step back a little bit, it's it's a thing that I designed because I had a feeling that we we have like this sort of collective intuition um, about why things go wrong, or that it was obvious it was going to go wrong, and I was like, but is it that obvious? Is this even a thing we should be a little bit more rigorous about rather than just like collectively running people out of the town on a rail on Twitter? That's maybe a problem. We maybe need to be a little bit more rigorous about talking about when things are problematic, why they're problematic. And um, and how are people even going to learn that before they've theoretically had all this experience in industry? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so like essentially um, this, this quiz, which I designed and it's something that I wrote in Python and then a bunch of wonderful women from our ladies hopped on and translated it to R straight away as I was still writing it in oh, Python, which was that. incredibly. So I, I released it a few weeks ago for an event that was a meetup and it was the R ladies and the uh, women in machine learning and data science meetup. Um, and yeah, the R ladies were like, well, we want the R version. We don't want the Python people to miss <laughs> to like win out, which is totally fair. But also I don't write R. So I was like, well, if you can help me. Yeah. Um, what a motivation. Yeah. Um, and, and now my very wonderful partner has also helped me by like kicking off a Rust version because Rust is the hipster new cool language. That's and correct. That's, you just have to be seen yeah. there. And we'll, there will also be a hosted version. So I do actually own summertrials.dev and coming soon there will be like a web hosted version of this quiz as well. So folks who aren't devs don't have to like run, you know, a Python script or some other script in their terminal and run this quiz that way. It's there for kicks and giggles, but... Um, but yes. Now, we already knew that you were a great person to come to around what questions should I be asking. I'm trying to solve this problem. I'm maybe mm. trying to solve it this way. You've put the ethics lit- litmus test out there before. Yes. And for those who haven't seen that, it's a series of provocations um, with a fantastic test tube delivery method, which is great. But it's just, you know, it's low tech. It's like just pull these out of the, the test tube and 
go through them and think about them and think about them with your product. So how did that prepare you for for doing something like this? What what were the yeah. what were the challenges in moving from lo-fi to uh, to to like tech tech? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think there's something appealing about having a physical card deck you can touch, and that was the part of the point of that. But um, I also wanted something a little bit more systematic and rigorous. And this is my attempt. So if you think about, you know, the, 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 the job of going from suspicion in your gut to like, you know, a more high fidelity version of your suspicion, like this is a step towards that. It's, it's slightly more rigorous and it's, um, it's broken up into three sections. The sections are uh, scanning the, the target cohort, which is the word I use to describe the people that the system makes decisions over. Um, I specifically say target cohort because they may not be consumers. They mm-hmm. may not even know that the system is making decisions about them. So they may be completely unaware of the process. So the idea is to flag that they may not even be like kind of conscious participators in a system. Mm-hmm. Um, the middle section really focuses on how you've implemented your technology more broadly into the world. It's not looking at, you know, did you use NLP or computer vision or like, you know, Zapier's app? What it's asking is like, you know, can you turn it off if it goes wrong? And questions kind of more broadly about like how you can think about the system recovering when it goes wrong or how you find out if someone has a problem with the decision. So, you know, sort of like the the, the feedback loops and the ways it's integrated like back into the world. And then the third section asks questions about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So it's basically saying like, you know. Let's take this back back to essentials. Yeah, Yeah. to essentials. Like, you know, what are the things that humans need to survive and thrive? Are we impacting them? Um, So, yeah, it's it's essentially an attempt to sort of take this, like, suspicious gut feeling that I think a lot of folks have in the data ethics and machine learning fairness space and formalize it a little bit and offer it out to other people to, to try building up that same sort of sense. So do these results... Uh, are they private to each person who does them? I imagine with your benefit of privacy that that might be the case. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to offer, like, a library at first is because you pull down the script, run it on your local machine, and no one needs to know. Yeah. So it's totally yours. Yeah. Um, I, I am wanting to build a web-hosted version simply so that it's easier for folks who aren't developers. But, um, yeah. I did wonder if you might add a tick box around, you know, do you want to share your results anonymously? You know, could there be a benchmarking component to this? Mm. Because I find in conversations, with people about trying to measure risk, it's, it can be a very difficult discussion. Not only does every individual have a different risk appetite, but your experience in trying to understand how, um, if, you know, how uh, a breach of a risk might have impact can be really based on different people's experiences. What, yeah, how have you absolutely. thought about that? No, that's a, it's a great question. And I think um, it's, it sort of leads neatly into a feature I want to build but have not built yet, which is compare your score. Yes. Um, so I think that uh, a really interesting piece of information is I ranked this as like, you know, 50% a difference of chance, but Vanessa ranked it as 90% likely to happen. Why is that? There's like an obvious discussion to have there and with your team members or colleagues or even people across the, the company. So I think um, if you could imagine filling out this quiz in a larger group of people, you could see like the distribution of scores and it starts to become a little bit more rigorous again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could also imagine like seeing which questions had the highest variance and that being like an important thing to go back and like unpick a little bit. What a great trigger. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of ways you could imagine a, a set of questions like this being used to try and like, you know, essentially like pull the collective gut of the company. Yeah. Um, but also like highlight where there's like real disagreement and use that as a, as a kickoff for, you know, I, I see this as, you know, it's, it's a generative tool. It's a provocative tool. Like yeah. everything I do, it's like <laughs> the idea that there's a score is absolutely a MacGuffin. The score yeah, is, no, exactly. yeah. Um, I do it only offer, becomes yeah. useful when you run it through all of the products that you're producing yeah. and then you start to go, wow, we're continually playing in this risky space and why yeah. is that acceptable to us and why is this not? Yeah. But like, I, I will say like, I, I deliberately constructed this score design with the idea that like my, this is just, you know, my take on the world is that most things are a little bit bad, you know, like most things are a little bit wrong or a little bit unethical. And, you know, like it's, it's, you know, we start from this like kind of not, not very fair not very even playing field. And that's just the world that we live in. And so, you know, like, it's more about like, I kind of assume that you're not going to get like the top tier and be in this like super safe zone. I assume most people will be like kind of in the middle two And particularly tiers. in innovation spaces, yeah, you know, absolutely. You are, you're pushing boundaries and um, so, like, the reason I assign about 30% of the weight of the score to this, like, system integration questions is because I do think we have a bunch of things we can do as technologists and designers and creatives to, like, make it better or worse. Mm -hmm. So, like, one of the big ones is if it's really high risk, can you do it with less people? And this yeah. is... What some... sort of controls can you apply on exactly. that Exactly. Yeah. And you get, you get a list of things that you can personally decide to do. <laughs> at the end of this quiz. That's which, brilliant. So so you don't actually come out of it going, oh, well, it's it's all bad. But I also, guess I got 80%, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing to do, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, like, you know, my scores are a little bit silly and facetious. So sometimes you get one that's like, you know, this is the field of thorns, you know, this way the dead spiders come for you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so, like, I'm trying to make it a bit fun, but also I think that, you know, in general, we all know that we're working in these, like, dangerous, difficult spaces, and it's... I don't see the need to like be too. We have needed people to bring some fun to risk yeah, assessments. Yeah, you know? they're so like it's really quite grueling to do them, and then yeah. you know you, you keep crossing boundaries into other people's zones, like business continuity planning and what have you, and 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 also zones out of your control. You're a bit like, what if this cloud server service that I put my product in goes down? You know, or drops a data table. Yeah. Right, like that's that's not my uh, little Johnny tables. <laughs> yeah, my little Johnny. Yeah, but that's right. Like there's and and that's a really good point. Like there's only so many things you're gonna have control over. Yeah. So you have to acknowledge that and say, well, you know, we're gonna try and be as sensible as we can within the things that we do have control over, while acknowledging the risks that are outside of our control. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if we if we like kind of bring our expectations down from like, oh, everything is rosy and you know there's only upside to, well, actually, you know, like anything in life, any technology system is going to have good impacts and bad impacts. And, you know, we, we won't assume that we can prevent all of the bad impacts, but we can maybe think about, anticipate and try and reduce the worst ones. Well, you know what I found really refreshing about your, um, your assessment quiz is that you suggested that people use it during the ideation part of their process and so often, you know, people, you know, risk assessments are an afterthought. It's after yeah. everything's decided. You've got fewer Check options box. to change. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. actually really um, brilliant. When you talked about teams doing this, you know, how, how might you envisage, you know, people doing that? 
Oh, like, like, well, I think that you could take um, either the whole product or a feature, like a feature set in the product and say, okay, this is the, this is the sort of scope of the discussion. Now work your way through it and we'll compare our answers at the end. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I, I, I would like to sort of build in some kind of, um, you know, like answer, uh, like comparison tool that people could use where they could um, essentially like push in their scores, their answers. And, and, you know, as I said, like we could look at variants across like, you know, which answers are getting like the most dis- mm. widely discrepancies and versus the ones that are like all pretty much the same. But I mean, frankly, you could even use a Slido and just have everyone on anonymous and just put in their scores and then just be able yeah. to discuss, you know, what results are coming through. And yeah, yeah there's and so think, many ways to facilitate that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's about, it's not necessarily about, is the score exactly right? It's yeah. about like, have we actually like given this some attention and some thought and have we like taken the time to, you know, like interrogate our guts and have that conversation as opposed to just sitting on that squirrely feeling for mm. the rest of the development and like hoping things don't go wrong. I love it when you say squirrely. Um, <laughs> Laura, where should people go to um, play with this risk assessment quiz. It sounds incredibly well thought out and fun. Oh, and please contribute to it. Send me PRs. Send me, like, your comments. Tell me what's wrong. I'm, I'm very open to feedback on it. Um, if you get hop- so many fork requests. <laughs> I, look, well, no, people don't have to request to fork it. They can just fork it. But if they want me to push changes back into the main, they can just, yeah, feel free to, like, message me on GitHub. Hop on to GitHub. Look for my alias. It's summerscope, S-U-M-M-E-R-S-C-O-P-E. It's pinned up at the top of my profile. You'll find it there, the sweet summer child score. Love to hear your feedback. Tell me how useful or not it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Talk to me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Dan, tell us about this meteorite. So we found an awesome use for drones and... um artificial intelligence um essentially uh, a, a researcher in at Curtin University over in WA has used drones and AI to find a meteor on the Nullarbor plain um so essentially uh, last year on a remote cattle station as there are plenty of those on that large piece of, piece of land um they they managed to spot a like very small like oh, i don't know like 3 4 centimeter wide black glassy piece of meteorite that had fallen from the sky. How cool is this? Oh, what yeah. did they program that drone to look for? That's incredible. Oh, look, I, I would love to know this. I'm trying. I'm, I'm scanning through the article. We want trying anomalies. To, we want anomalies, yeah. Yes. Oh, well, look, I mean, the Nullarbor plane is pretty red. So I reckon if you if you if you're gonna be able to like see, but <laughs> all, this, all the scrub is pretty dark. Like yeah. a, a meteor is, is like a dark little stone, and you've got all the scrub. I mean, yeah, I'm, that's true. There's I, all the rubber flying off, you know, truck drivers' tires kinda, as they go on those roads. Kind of glassy. I don't know. Could man. be anything. It could be anything. It could be absolutely anything. I am really fascinated by meteorites. The idea that, like, you know, they they come from other other parts of the galaxy, and that you know they might have completely different composition to the minerals, and like, you know, the, yeah. the you the, might be able to build your Captain America shield out of it. This is yeah, this is where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, we're, we're, you're, you're thinking it's some kind of we'll find like, the one magical material. This is a, a brand new <laughs> unknown hey, element. element. Silicon is old hat. We need something cooler. <laughs> yeah, totally. Get I it. love it. Get it. Hey, there's a lovely thing going on at the moment um, by some indie game developers. They've created the Bundle for Ukraine. It's a collection of over 900 indie games available for a minimum donation of $10. So far, it's raised over $5 million, which was their target, for charities providing relief to Ukraine. Um, it's on itch. 
Uh, you can look at itch.io and search for the bundle for Ukraine. And uh, just really interesting seeing people try and contribute how they can. Yep. Yeah, great. Kind of great. All right, yeah. there aren't a ton of events on at the moment. Um, but uh, I did see this really fun thing come out of the Vic government. They have modelled um, in Minecraft Melbourne um, with the end of letting you wander through the Metro Tunnel project mm-hmm. so you can actually see what, say, Town Hall Station's going to look like. That's kind of cool. Absolutely incredible. Um, if you've got young people in your life or you're, um, you know, just into Minecraft, yep. uh, but particularly if you have young people in your life, get them to get this Absolutely. and take you through the map. Or teach you how to use Minecraft it's so you can do it yourself. kind <laughs> of stunning. You go in and almost the first thing you see is Flinders Street Station rendered in Minecraft. It's just looks like such a labour of love, um, but it's actually spot on. It's based on, you know, proper spatial data. So things are That's, kind of right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wildly impressed by people who have the, the spoons to do stuff like That's that. That's exactly like, it. How much work, how many, you must have a spreadsheet somewhere with like all the right bricks and brick colours and sizes and just like how many thousands you need of each. Yep. The ballerina looks incredible. Nice. Oh, that, that's all I had. I just had... Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, no, I was just going to say, as, the Astro News is great today. I'm loving all the Astro News. It's excellent. Yeah. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening, Vivica Wiley from CSIRO and all of their past projects, which are so interesting. Laura Summers doing double duty as our host and our guest this evening. The fabulous Mr. Dan Salmon. Oh, yeah. Um, our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Our podcaster, Matt Hall, who doesn't get as many shout-outs as we'd like, but thank you. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.